Hello, welcome to a new podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver. We've got a new issue out, and in that issue, there's a review of the evidence and applications for network imaging biomarkers. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors of this review. I'm David Eidelberg, and I'm uh, the director of the Neuroscience Center here at Feinstein Institute. We're in uh, Manhasset, New York, which is right uh, outside of New York City. Uh, And... um, I'm um, a neurologist uh, by training, and um, I've uh, had a career in research uh, involving myself in the studies of brain network organization and different kinds of uh, neurological diseases, um, mainly in Parkinson's disease and, and related movement disorders. Yeah, I'm Karolina Schindelbeck, and I'm a medical doctor from Germany. Um, specializing in neurology, and um, currently I'm doing a postdoctoral um, fellowship at David Adelberg's lab. Well, thank you both so much for for joining us today. We really appreciate it. So um, in your paper, then, you discussed the evidence for network imaging biomarkers and their clinical application in Parkinson's disease. Could you just tell us a little bit about what these network biomarkers are? It could be viewed as something abstract, but what it really is is something derived from brain images. One can make images of brain function, of metabolism or resting state MRI, and uh, these techniques extract uh, patterns of covariant brain uh, regions, that is, brain regions in which the uh, regional activity is uh, correlated across multiple synapses and brain regions. So it, it delivers a uh, network of interconnected areas. The network is uh, unique to a disease. So that was the basic uh, realization behind this, is that different forms of brain disease um, have different circuit-level pathologies, and as a result, they also have very, very specific uh, underlying brain networks that uh, one can actually uh, extract and measure uh, in life through uh, functional brain imaging. So uh, that's what those networks are. And the uh, other key thing is that they're not only can they be visualized, but they're common to all people who have a given disease. It's just that a given patient may have more or less of uh, the disease uh, of his or her disease network, and how much the individual possesses of the network is measurable as well. And uh, that's a thing called the subject score. Many of our studies measure those numbers and try to figure out whether those uh, variables change over time at a specific rate or uh, are they modulated by treatment. So would an effective treatment um, uh, take an abnormal network and uh, bring it down to normal levels? These network biomarkers, then, what do they tell us about the potentially underlying mechanisms? There's a lot of theory uh, that's been sort of laid down in the past 20, 30 years on uh, net on circuits, uh, that there are segregated uh, and parallel brain systems that can be involved in normal brain function, but that are also specifically involved in diseases. So in a motor disease like Parkinson's, there's a specific motor kind of circuitry 
of interconnected areas that are involved in the execution of movement in healthy people. And then there are those involved in learning and yet others that are involved in affective, uh, limbic kind of behaviors, that kind of thing. So we, what we found is that these networks that were extracted completely through uh, mathematical algorithms, so they're just delivered to the investigator or the neurologist, you just see the network, but they had deeper meaning in the end that they reflected abnormalities of one of these basic networks of the brain that are there in normal people. So there are distortions of the normal connections when you have a disease. And one of the ways to remedy the disease would be to try to focus on fixing the abnormality at the network level rather than at one or two uh, regions. So you could try to actually operate on the whole circuit. So the meaning of it is that it's a measure. The network itself is biological, and it can be produced. Very similar networks can be produced in experimental animals like with uh, Parkinsonian non-human primates can exhibit very, very similar networks to those we see in Parkinson's disease patients. But the, uh, the key thing here is that the network uh, becomes the target of treatment so that uh, this is an abnormal network and uh, given that we can quantify it, we can see whether some new treatment, for instance, gene therapy or something like that, might uh, ameliorate those, um, that particular network might be uh, diminished or removed altogether from the brain by a given treatment. So uh, that's the, to me at least, that's the underlying meaning. From a clinical perspective, I think it's very interesting to note that um, despite the heterogeneity um, of neurodegenerative diseases and um, Parkinson's disease, I think it is very interesting that um, it is possible to identify um, these patterns um, that are very stereotyped and that those um, patterns um, are so similar even if you look at different groups from patients in different countries across the world and also using different scanner methods. Is there anything you can tell me about the, the, the more clinical side of using these, uh, these network biomarkers? So um, when we talk about the um, roles of these network biomarkers in clinical practice and in clinical research, I would say in both cases the main use um, would be in differential diagnosis and measuring treatment responses. There are actually several diseases that are easily misdiagnosed um, with Parkinson's disease, such as multiple system atrophy, supranuclear palsy, and corticobasal degeneration. Um, in fact, several studies using postmortem pathology to confirm the clinical diagnosis have found that as many as one quarter of Parkinson's disease diagnosis are actually wrong. So the automated imaging-based classification using these networks could really improve the accuracy of differential diagnosis. It is particularly important to make sure that the diagnosis um, before you offer an invasive therapy such as deep brain stimulation to a patient. And clinical trials should use these biomarkers to make sure that the subjects 
they are testing a new therapy on actually do have Parkinson's disease and not some other disorder. This application has already been used to select um, patients in a phase two study on subthalamic gene therapy for advanced Parkinson's disease. During an early phase trial, the network biomarkers can provide an objective and quantifiable measure of treatment response to complement clinical outcomes like um, improvement in UPDRS scores or improvement in cognitive tasks. The differential diagnostic capability of this was originally published in Lancet Neurology by our group um, in 2010, and it has since been replicated with uh, clinical confirmation in a number of places, uh, notably in India, where they were very eager to differentiate uh, because they didn't want people inadvertently to be referred for DBS surgeries that are quite invasive and costly. So they want to be certain that the right subjects receive the correct treatment, you know. And so these kinds of technologies, although they're a bit abstract, make a real difference to the individual patient, uh, even in the third world, so to speak, because the imaging methods are present and uh, well established in many different countries so as long as they can scan the patients uh, efficiently and accurately these uh, markers can be applied to every scan and to measure the likelihood that it's Parkinson's disease or some other disease um, so uh, that's one thing, and then it's also been useful for gauging the cognitive disability that also occurs in Parkinson's patients. So uh, you don't just get the motor thing with the akinetic rigidity and tremor, but you're also able to pick up signs of imminent uh, cognitive deterioration that occurs in a good many patients, and you can gauge the separate uh, progression in a person on the cognitive side uh, versus the motor side, because those two things are not the same in a given individual and that they rely on different uh, brain networks as well. So uh, this is, we thought it was a timely topic for Lancet Neurology because these things have really moved rapidly from the computer computational medicine algorithmic uh, area into the clinic, and it really has a lot of validity in terms of the replication, the stability of the measurements, and the ultimate, and uh, the impact that these measurements uh, can have on an individual patient. So uh, it's mm -hmm. moving forward uh, at a rapid level, and we suspect that precision medicine types of treatments in the future will rely heavily on this and maybe related forms of computation. So uh, it's less of a theor theoretical consideration, and an, it's an increasingly practical, patient-oriented consideration. So from the other side, what are some of the limitations currently that, uh, that you know, researchers and clinicians should think about when, when thinking about using them? The issues are mainly to do with the t availability of the technology for imaging. So I mentioned that these uh, PET imaging is established in many different places in the world, but it still is a costly 
thing that requires uh, cyclotron and at least delivery of radio tracer, if not actual on-site production of radio tracer. These days, there's a lot more of delivery, but uh, so countries like uh, Philippines and um, India have, um, they may have one central cyclotron that distributes tracer to the whole country, and they're supplying three or four different PET scanners, but that's still not really enough to guarantee access for every patient. So we've been looking into adaptations of this concept for magnetic resonance uh, with the idea that it's uh, non-invasive, for one thing, and it also doesn't employ uh, ionizing radioactivity the way PET does. Mm -hmm. So it has um, a certain um, adaptability and comfort level, too, that the patients don't necessarily need injections uh, uh, of a tracer or anything like that. So, um, and that's very, very promising um, uh, in that the networks, the key networks have been already validated. They've been identified and, and replicated. The ultimate thing will be to optimize the MRI scanning protocols in such a way that a person anywhere could be scanned with sufficient accuracy as to um, have, you know, reliable imaging for that person to capture whatever network is needed. So that needs some work. The, the listeners to this podcast might be interested in knowing that you don't need to have the network on site, that as long as the images of whatever derivation, PET or magnetic resonance, they, uh, were, as long as they're adequate in their, um, you know, the protocols to produce them were decent and conform to different guidelines, they can be exported online to a central site where the uh, actual image analysis and network uh, measurements would happen. So you don't need to have a person on site and computational power on site to do all this. The data can be moved to wherever, and some person in Kansas or someplace like that can analyze all the world's needs and data that come through and relay back um, results with probabilities of a likely diagnosis, for instance, uh, back to the user which would be the clinical caretaker of the patient. So, um, so you know, this has uh, future practicability, but we're still ultimately limited by the availability of technologies in the world. So looking to the future then, what are the next steps for you to take this work forwards? So one important area of research has to do with predicting whether and when individuals with prodromal syndromes such as REM sleep behavior disorder, in short, RBD, will phenoconvert to a neurodegenerative disease. We already know that RBD patients who develop Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies already have elevated um, Parkinson's disease-related pattern expression during the RBD stage, so in the premotor stage. But we need larger longitudinal studies to validate these patterns and to determine how accurate they can predict near-term phenoconversion in these patients. And this will be especially important as 
therapies to modify the disease become available in the future. There are some really um, neat applications uh, out there, for instance, through different genes, different mutations for the disease. It needn't be Parkinson's, one could speak generally, because the technology is, has been very well developed for Parkinson's disease, but analogous techniques exist for other, other neurodegeneration disorders like Huntington disease and Alzheimer's disease. But the thing for the, I think what we're looking forward to are the study of different genotypes, different mutations that cause the disease. And as Katarina says, also prodromal syndromes, so phenotypes like this REM behavior disorder uh, that are out there that have a high, uh, they have around a 50% likelihood of getting PD in the ensuing five-year, five to ten-year period. And it's important to know which RBD patient is at risk to be developing Parkinson's disease, because not all do, only half really do over time. So which ones would, would be at risk? And in fact, those people could be treated with a new drug as drugs are being uh, looked at for neurodegenerations of different kinds, uh, and specifically for looking at alpha-synuclein uh, deposition and which we know is increased in GBA mutation, the uh, glucose reversidase uh, um, uh, uh, recessive um, um, abnormality, that one could actually try to uh, look at the treatment effect of a disease-modifying drug using the network, because the network is really very, very um, accurate in terms of the signal that it's a situation where the person, the signal is increasing with disease progression rather than diminishing. And uh, markers like dopamine just uh, begin low and stay low over time, but this is something that is developing over time. And the rate at which it would be developing, let's say, in a gene carrier for some uh, some bad deleterious mutation that causes Parkinson's disease could be measured with and without a the, the new drug, and one would be uh, able to um, gauge the efficacy of a drug uh, quicker and with far fewer subjects than uh, than is currently the case. Um, were one to rely strictly on um, clinical outcome measures. Uh, you know, like severity of Parkinson's or something like that. So uh, I don't know if that's clear, but uh, this thing has a huge practicality in, uh, just as a biomarker for clinical trials of disease modification and also for screening populations for risk. And the uh, crossover into the MRI field is going to allow this to be potentially given to broader populations. So it needn't be limited to small groups of patients here and there, but it could really be used to, to screen larger numbers of subjects um, for epidemiologic and um, studies for pharmacology and things like that. We need techniques to allow one to pick up neuroprotective effects because now, you know, there hasn't been a good drug or procedure in a long time and 
partly to do with, I think, the inaccuracy of the measurements that we're using to gauge these changes. And now that we're learning that there are other ways to solve these problems, it may open the door quickly to some interventions to actually help these people or to prevent the disease altogether in some sense. Well, it's a fascinating topic and so much potential for the future. Dr. Eidelberg and Dr. Schindelberg, thank you both so much for your time today. Great. Our thank pleasure. You. Thank you.